Fortino, no shot. Johnson back to Fortino. Fortino rolling puck down low. Shot scores! It's Pula again! Canada wins gold in overtime! Welcome to Changing on the Fly, a podcast about hockey, politics, and social change. I'm your host, Aaron Lakoff. Like blades on the ice, Changing on the Fly cuts right to the heart of today's most important issues in hockey. We go beyond the stats and pundits to bring you hard-hitting analysis on the politics of the game we love. From taking on racism and sexism in the locker room, to looking at the impacts of climate change on hockey, we amplify voices from the margins and bring them to center ice. Stay with us. All right. Hello, 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 and welcome back for season two of Changing on the Fly. My name is Aaron. So excited to have you back with us. Tell your friends, tell your coworkers, tell your teammates, like, share, subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. There's going to be so much good stuff about season two. It's been a long summer. It's been a really nice summer, but I'm so happy to be back here in the driver's seat and to have you all with us. Just to give you a little idea of what we're gonna be bringing you on this season ahead of Changing on the Fly, well, we're gonna take a whole new in-depth look at the history of the Colored Hockey League in Nova Scotia. We're gonna be bringing you more stories of people and athletes trying to build supportive cultures for people of color, queer folks, and other marginalized identities in hockey, because for real, bro culture in this sport needs to go. We all love the game. That's why we're here doing this, but we got to change it from the ground up. And hence, you have the Changing on the Fly podcast. And so today, I thought it'd be fitting to speak with Erica Ayala. She is an NWHL analyst that is, of course, the National Women's Hockey League. She's a broadcaster and an expert on women's hockey. We're going to talk about the women's hockey strike in Sweden, on the other side of the pond, the Dream Gap Tour happening in women's hockey in North America, and so much more coming right up. But before we go anywhere, we are just launching our second season. If you want to go back and hear all of season one, all the episodes there, you can find them all up on our website at www.changingonthefly.ca. But look, there aren't a lot of other people out there doing this kind of work. And I'm doing it as a labor of love. I really need your support, though. And what better time to support this podcast than to get on at the ground level of season two. So we have a Patreon page where you can sign up to support us for as little as $1 per month. And look, I really, really hope this podcast is worth at least $1 to you. I mean, you can't even buy that much for a dollar these days, but you can buy great hockey podcasting delivered directly into your ears as we do with Changing on the Fly. So find us at patreon.com slash changing on the fly. You can pause the podcast right now. Go sign up. We'll be right here when you come back. Or if you want to make a one-time donation of any amount, you can shoot us some change by email or rather by PayPal to changing on the fly podcast at gmail.com. But most importantly, tell a friend or share this episode on social media, because honestly, that means the world and getting this podcast in more people's ears is our main goal. 
Okay, back to our regular programming. Here is my interview with Erica Ayala. Joining me on the line right now is someone who I consider to be a women's hockey expert, broadcaster, and someone who's been covering uh, the NWHL, uh, that's the National Women's Hockey League in the States, and women's hockey in general for quite a while. Erica Ayala, welcome back to Changing on the Fly. Thank you so much, Aaron, for having me back. Always a pleasure to chat hockey with you. Cool. All right. So um, as our listeners might know, we had you on at the very end of the season uh, last year to talk about that horrible news about the Canadian Women's Hockey League uh, shutting down. Um, And then we kind of just wanted to pick up on that same note for this episode being the first episode of of our new season. Uh, But first, before we get into hockey talk, how was your summer? Oh, man, it's been busy. So the athletic started a new WNBA vertical. And I've I was the I am the the beat writer for the New York Liberty for that. So it's it's been uh, it's been exciting. uh, Being able to bring more Yeah, thank you more women's sports coverage to um, to different media outlets. So that's been fun. We're still in the WNBA playoffs. Uh, I was in DC for the first few games of the semifinal there. So uh, keeping busy. We're keeping busy and, you know, had some time here and there to catch up with friends and do some travel for leisure. So that was that was great, too. Thanks for asking. Awesome. Okay. well, yeah. Speaking of women's hockey, um, I actually wanted to start by going overseas and looking at the situation in Europe, because what we're seeing right now in Sweden is a bit of an analogous situation to what's been happening with women's hockey in North America. So there's been some really interesting news uh, lately coming out of Sweden, uh, being the Swedish Ice Hockey Federation canceled the Four Nations Women's Hockey Tournament, which was supposed to be in November of this year. So that would have been a tournament between Sweden, Finland, the US and Canada, because it can't guarantee its players participation due to an ongoing pay dispute. So that's, of course, uh, the the national uh, Swedish uh, women's team similar to to the U.S. team and also the players in Canada have been demanding better pay and better conditions. So, yeah, what, what's your take on what's going on in Sweden right now? Oh, man, it's, you know, unfortunate on a lot of levels. It's unfortunate that players, and we continue to see this across women's sports truly, but, but certainly in women's hockey, excuse me, it's unfortunate that that players feel that they're not able to have conversations with with their federations or their respective, um, you know, colleges or or pro leagues to the point where their option they feel that their only option is to um, not do the thing that they love and that makes them an elite athlete. Um, and we see that again with Sweden. There have been complaints. And actually, I want to give a shout out to Meredith Foster, who's done great work on looking into um, what's been happening with Sweden and, and some of the reasons why perhaps we've seen them slip in in the rankings when it comes to these international tournaments. So that's unfortunate. And then it's also, of course, unfortunate that um, a tournament, an international tournament has to be canceled because they're 
is no way out from you know this difference of opinion and that players still feel that they are not being valued and supported in a way that is necessary for a international um you know a team that competes in world championships and in olympics uh, they they don't feel that they have what they need and and that's really unfortunate as we go into 2020 Mm-hmm. I mean, and it seems kind of ridiculous in a certain way when you break it down because, you know, you just said, you know, that the player's not having what they need. And the thing is, like, what the players are asking for is actually not really that much when you compare it to a lot of other salaries in, in, in men's professional sports. I mean, like, you know, what, what what's your take on that? Is what is what people are asking for totally unreasonable or is it very reasonable and very attainable? You know, and I spoke with a player who is actually retired but played with uh, the Swedish national team at the Aurora Games. And what her take was is that it's just that, of, of course, salaries – as they should be, are a part of the conversation. But particularly when it comes to federations and national team players, there's a level of respect. There's a level of care, um, of treatment, literally of the treatment of their bodies in the in the way of recovery and access that they have to trainers. But then also treatment as in as a, a professional athlete that is missing. And those are things that cannot go um without being addressed any longer. And that's essentially what, what the players are saying. So yes, I agree with you that it, again, it's not, I don't find it to be outside of uh, what is reasonable, but when we have a culture um, and obviously this is not just an American culture, not just North American culture. This is, this is a kind of a, a cultural that we see throughout the world where women are valued less um, that is a huge problem. And again, it's very unfortunate. And my take has always been that it's difficult for these athletes to put their particular, you know, essentially their career, their international career on the line, because even though it's not what they deem to be satisfactory for, for the time and for the work that they put in, it's still something it's it's a dream that that's being fulfilled so it's a very it's a very tough time and you know but ultimately what this boils down to is in in my mind at least is that there there's money there's always money in sport uh there are always business things that have to be taken care of when it Mm -hmm. comes to sports and sports is very much so a business um, but business is made up of people. And if you're running a business in a way where the people that are putting on the product for you don't feel comfortable or confident that they're going to be taken care of in any of the ways that I just mentioned, then that is a leadership issue mm-hmm. and that has to be addressed. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, we saw a situation very similar to this um, in the United States just over two years ago where there was uh, an international tournament coming up and then the U.S. women's team uh, essentially went on strike over over pay conditions and, and won a significant pay increase uh, right before that tournament was supposed to happen. Do you see parallels between what's happening in Sweden right now and, and that movement in the U.S.? Of course. And I think you see, I think players see that. Players 
around the world were supportive of the U.S. national team. And I think the U.S. national team was inspired by other uh, U.S. women's teams, um, be that soccer, be that in basketball, etc. And I think that they were also inspired by the history of the the federation from the player pool perspective um, that they come from. So of course I think there are parallels here, uh, but just as unfortunately there are parallels in how federations feel they can treat women athletes. And again, that that is, that's been inherited and perpetuated, unfortunately. And unfortunately none of the leadership felt uh, or has done enough to bring those standards up over time as instead they've perpetuated and, and have kind of used the bare bone minimum. Um, and I would argue that that is done because again, there is this inherent belief that women are not maybe worth or don't require as much of an investment. But of course, um, women certainly in the United States have done more when it comes to championships, when it comes to Olympic Olympic medals in all of our sports uh, they've done more with less. So if a federation, if their end goal is to be successful in tournaments, then again, a business argument could be that if you invested equitably or even equal to what your team is bringing you, then that's only going to yield more favorable results. So there's a there's a business piece of this that, that doesn't necessarily add up for me either. And if it is a funding issue, then find the funding that's mm -hmm. also on leadership, that's on a federation to do, that's not on the players to do. Because I don't know any male players for that are responsible for finding funding for their federation. They show up, they put on uh, the maple leaf, they put on red, white, and blue, you know, they wear and don their team colors and then they play their sport. That's their job. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the fact that so often it feels that women are responsible for so much more and do so much more with less uh, is very aggravating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just like you said, I mean, you got to put in the funding to, to see the results. Um, I want to bring the discussion back over to, to North America. So, of course, last year uh, we saw a really sad end to the CWHL season uh, got the news just at the end of March of 2019 that the CWHL would be shutting down. And I mean, by the way, like, I mean, I, I feel bad asking you all these grim <laughs> questions about women's hockey. Um, I really hope that one day we can just like get back to a place where we're just talking about the beautiful game and not about all these really upsetting issues. But I think it, it is good <laughs> to kind of wade through this to really understand um what's going on you know absolutely um so anyway so the, you know the big lines of the the story are that the cwhl folded uh players most of the players just found out a couple hours before or even as the announcement was being made uh and then of course later in the spring and over the summer there was this big movement of at least 200 women's professional players getting together forming the professional women's Hockey Players Associ Association, and then saying they're going to sit out the upcoming season until there was a sustainable solution that was put forward. Um, so first, just any significant developments to this story that happened over the spring or over the summer that you would want to talk about? 
Oh man, there were there, there's so much that happened. It, it's hard to, in a concise manner, uh, get to all of the things. But essentially, uh, I would just co-sign on your um, on your on your brief analysis. The thing that I'll add that is timely is that we're actually in the it, the first intermission of the PWHPA Dream Gap Tour in Toronto. So I'm actually you know uh, streaming that here in the States and we're about two weeks away from the puck dropping on the fifth season of the NWHL. So, um, obviously there's a, definitely a lot of opinion and I think honestly, a lot of questions that need to be answered on both sides, but, um, that kind of brings us to current in that in March of 2019, we went from losing the CWHL, um, to thinking that, you know, there would be just that one option, that being the NWHL. And now we see that in a very different way, but um, kind of history, if not repeating exactly, it, it's definitely, um, you know, we've, we've gone back to the cycle of um, there being two different routes and two different belief systems of what post-college and or professional opportunities in women's ice hockey look like in North America. Yeah. Um, there was also that really bizarre announcement uh, coming from the NWHL right after the CWHL folded that they were going to add two new Canadian teams. So, so one in Toronto and one in Montreal. And I know that announcement kind of seemed to raise a lot of questions for people. Any news or updates on, on those moves? I think that, uh, and we talked about this, and we were we were with Shireen actually. We talked about this at the time. I didn't really understand that announcement for a lot of different reasons, coming from the NWHL side of things. And at the time, we didn't know that there was going to be a new contract. We didn't know that there was going to be a revenue share, and we certainly didn't know that we would have, uh, as you said, almost 200 players say that essentially. Uh, my word, not theirs, that they're boycotting um, the NWHL. Um, we didn't know any of that. Uh, but even not knowing what the future would hold, to me, it didn't make the it, it didn't come across as the best public announcement, even if there were conversations being have being had, excuse me, internally to make that announcement so soon after the CWHL folded. Um because I, th I think that whether there was a business model or funding to support that, I think that the timing uh, was raw. And because there had already been a lot of, um, I mean, I think we can just be blunt. I, I, my impression was that there was not, a, there was love lost between the CWHL and the NWHL. And that mm. did trickle down to the fan base. Um, and so, I didn't understand that move um, or that announcement. But to answer your question, uh, no, there has not been any movement uh, to have that announcement come to fruition. The NWHL has said that um, more or less, as I understand their statements to be, is that they have been trying to reach out to people, um, 
but there was not any real interest in being able to get people on board, such as general managers. Uh, Players were questioning whether they wanted to play in the NWHL. And of course, now we know that some of that was due to perhaps uh, conversations of what we now know as the PWHPA. So uh, if you hear the NWHL tell it, uh, you know, they were ready to go and had sponsorships available. I think if you talk to other people that had been involved in the CWHL and you hear them tell it, uh, they felt that there was no real interest in them Mm -hmm. working with the NWHL and that they, uh, you know, were were just not going to do that. So uh, again, I guess it just depends on where you get your news and, and what your, um, what you're more inclined to um, to kind of hold on to. But mm-hmm. I think what both sides are saying is basically that, um, you know, there was no agreement on how to have the talent pool, again, particularly from the general manager perspective, um, engage in the existing professional league. And so mm-hmm. uh, without that coordination and with those general managers obviously being very connected to the player pool and to the partners and to the ice time that existed in those Canadian markets they were looking in, it didn't seem like it was going to be something with such a short turnaround, just a matter of months, uh, that they would have had to get all of that done. It didn't seem viable for the NWHL at that time to be able to move into those markets. For sure. And I mean, you know, just speaking from where I am in Montreal, it's no one really seems to be talking about it either in the Twitter sphere or amongst people who who are involved or who who cover women's hockey uh, here in the city. So so that's really unfortunate. And I mean, even now as like we're kind of at the tail end of summer and then getting into fall, it's especially sad because this would be the time of year that I would go out and I'd buy my tickets to the opening match for Les Canadiens and just kind of getting ready for the season to pick up again. And it's just, it's so bizarre that that's not happening. Like it, it leaves yeah. a really big hole. Um, well, I mean, speaking of holes, one way that many of the players, so we mentioned these 200 players who are boycotting or sitting out the season or trying to fill that hole is with what they're calling the Dream Gap Tour. You just mentioned it's getting underway today in Toronto. So maybe by the time that some of our listeners are, are hearing this, it, it could be wrapped up. It's an interesting initiative to kind of um, at least make sure that players see some ice time in front of fans, in front of audiences, uh, and get a little bit of um, not only practice and and competition in there, but also as a way to kind of showcase talent. And really with that focus, which which I love, is all, always seems to be a focus of women's professional sports, of inspiring the youth and trying to get uh, young girls and young women involved in the sport. Um, but can you tell us a little bit more about the Dream Gap Tour? Sure. So the, the phrase Dream Gap um, essentially comes from this idea that uh, – there are when you grow up as a hockey fan, you can grow up and imagine yourself as a NHL player, particularly if you're a boy. Although if you hear some of the women who play ice hockey, they tell you that, you know, their biggest dream was to be the first woman or the first girl on, you know, insert favorite NHL team. Um, but the idea is that 
because again, and this coming from for the game that they feel that there are no viable uh, options for women's professional hockey um, that meet kind of the standards and criteria of, uh, uh, you know, really being sustainable, being uh, providing a livable wage, but then also to have girls who are playing hockey now, aspire to be drafted into uh that's that's where the idea of dream gap comes from is to have more visibility for women's hockey so that girls in particular who are growing up playing the sport are encouraged and i think it also comes from i believe it was the company secret uh did this campaign and hillary knight among others alex morgan from the u.s soccer team were a part of this uh, campaign that said that statistically speaking, you know, an overwhelming amount of girls by the age of 14 uh, feel uh, compelled to quit sport uh, altogether for one reason or another, peer pressure. Um, In my case, I played baseball. And if I didn't transition to softball, I wasn't able to play baseball any longer at a certain age. Uh, So just things like that, that's kind of like this, this telling time for girls. And if we want to keep girls as they, you know, go into adulthood playing sport and maybe not with any aspirations of becoming an elite athlete, but just for all of the things and all of the reasons that we like playing sport, then getting them at that age and keeping them engaged at that age is really important. So anyway, uh, that, that is my understanding of, of the PWHP. PA Dream Gap Tour in its name, but then of course it also comes from, as you were alluding to, that if they're not going to play in organized in the or, in the only organized and the only paid, aka pro league that exists in North America, then what are these athletes going to do? These are Olympians that are looking to return to, I guess, what would be the 2022 Olympics in China. These are players that maybe have been in and out of their national team training camps still looking to make their first senior roster. And with nowhere to play, um, not even mentioning how they're going to get training and practice and coaching, uh, what are they going to do? And so Mm -hmm. the Dream Gap Tour is the name, but the concept, which is birthed by, of course, the PWHPA, is to keep women active, uh, women professional hockey players active, uh, either because they just want to keep playing hockey and, and why the heck not, or because, as I mentioned, they are gunning for uh, a national team roster spot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure. Also kind of reminds me a little bit of like that kind of like the, the idea of the gap year, like after high school and before university, except in this case, <laughs> yeah. there's no like privileged backpacking around Europe. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not so much. <laughs> um, well, okay. So our, our guest today is uh, NWHL analyst and broadcaster Erica Ayala. Uh, last question I wanted to ask you, Erica. Um, so as you mentioned, you've been covering women's basketball, WNBA, the season's about to wrap up. And then, of course, we're just about to start a new season uh, for for women's hockey, of course, the NWHL. What are some of the big storylines or maybe some of the the big players, uh, teams that you're excited about and that you're going to be looking at and covering this year? Well, I think the biggest storyline is what the heck is women's ice hockey, as I've been kind of saying uh, a little tongue-in-cheek, you know, post-college women's 
uh, ice hockey, what is it actually going to look like? Mm. Because although NWHL rosters are being filled, they're certainly different because you've had talent, people who were pioneers in the NWHL who've decided that they don't want to play in the NWHL any longer. Um, so now there are other players that will have to, um, who are not familiar to the fan base that maybe not be familiar to you know what we kind of know as again this kind of post-college women's hockey community uh so in a way there's almost like this um uh, maybe rebrand isn't the right term but there is you know a reintroduction that has to happen at least on the side of the nwhl so i think the storylines are just you know who are the players that are going to emerge and and i think honestly how is the nwhl going to handle how it markets its players i think it's akin to when you saw players leave for the olympics in 2018 and the nwhl lost a lot of the national team players that had come from the cwhl to the nwhl and you know they were used to at the time marketing almost exclusively uh, hillary knight uh, yeah, I think I'd pretty much stop there. Mm-hmm. Although they had a, a number of other uh, Olympians in, in the league. And I think that is not a privilege that the league is going to have. Uh, so what's that going to look like? Um, I think also, uh, you know, obviously I'll, I'll, I I plan to continue working with the NWHL on the broadcast, but I, like I said, I'm, I'm sitting here, uh, I've got the stream going for the PWHPA tour, and I don't think they have the same issue when it comes to notoriety. If you, you know, uh, were to look at a roster on the NWHL team and look at a roster on a PWHPA tournament, the PWHPA for, you know, an average hockey fan someone who knows you know the bare minimum of women's hockey they're going to recognize pwhpa names so they have that Mm -hmm. but the question for me is really what does this gap tour look like if it is a, a you know a gap year that there's a timeline that's attached to that so what are things going to look like after this 2019 2020 season and how is that going to feed into all of the things that the players want again in particular heading into another olympic cycle so those Mm -hmm. are i i don't think there's any getting around that even regardless of what happens on the ice uh those are the biggest storylines going into women's uh hockey this Mm -hmm. season Mm -hmm. and i think like you know for all of us um people in the media fans players included i think we all really want to see a just solution come out uh, as soon as possible Our guest today has been Erica Ayala. Um, Thank you so much for being with us. And where can people find your work? Sure. So I can be found on Twitter and Instagram, both the same handle. It's elindsay08. That's Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y. Also, I'll be... uh, restarting the founding four podcast so it's a podcast that yeah i'm very excited for that we are nwhl centric so we'll obviously be covering players in the league but i had the off season to talk to some former players about their memories of opening weekend and and other fun things so really looking forward to that as well all right right on well once again uh, erica thank you so much for being with us on changing on the fly today thank you for having me
Welcome back to Changing on the Fly. I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Erica. And again, be sure to follow her and check out all the amazing work she's doing covering women's hockey and other women's sports as well, like women's basketball. You can find her on Twitter at elindsay08. And of course, we will have a link to that in our show notes. So one last thing that we're going to cover before we head on out is the news around Austin Matthews, the star young forward of the Toronto Maple Leafs in the NHL. And a lot of this uh, information I've pulled from a really wonderful article on the topic by Hamal Javeri, who writes for USA Today. Make sure you check out her coverage around this because I found it really indispensable. So if you haven't heard, the new season, the new NHL season is just about to get underway. The exhibition games have already started and already Austin Matthews has found himself in a lot of hot water. There are allegations coming out and of course he is facing criminal charges related to indecent behavior and harassment following an incident that happened in his hometown of Scottsdale, Arizona at the beginning of the of the spring rather. And all of this to me is really eerily similar to what happened with the star forward of the Chicago Blackhawks, Patrick Kane, just a few years ago when the season was just getting underway and there was incidents coming out of an alleged rape that he was involved in. Well, now this isn't rape, but it does have to do with gendered harassment. And I still think it's pretty serious. And the really disturbing thing is how unseriously it seems to be taken by a lot of people, a lot of men rather, in the men's hockey media landscape. And I think the true test of this is going to be how seriously the Toronto Maple Leafs take it. Because when the allegations came out around Patrick Kane, the Chicago Blackhawks didn't seem to take it very seriously, the fact that one of their star players could be a rapist. Because, you know, of course, these star players, they mean a lot to the teams, right? Like Austin Matthews was very much at the center of the Maple Leafs turnaround, going from one of the bottom feeder teams in the league to arguably being a cup contender, although they can't really seem to get past the Boston Bruins, but that's a whole other story. So to go back to this interview from, uh, or rather the article from USA Today and Hamal Javeri's article, she writes, according to an incident report filed on May 26 in Matthews' hometown of Scottsdale, Arizona, a female security guard complained that Matthews and a group of his friends tried to get into her vehicle at 2 a.m. while she was sitting inside. When the officer got out of her car to confront them, Matthews said he was trying to be funny and wanted to see what she would do. As his friends tried to defuse the situation, Matthews then apparently walked away, pulled down his pants, and mooned her, though he kept his boxers on. In the incident report, the security officer, a military veteran who suffers from PTSD, repeated how distressing the incident was for her, stating, who knows what they intended to do, and that, quote, it was more than one guy. So... There's other details that are emerging around this case that, in fact, this woman who was involved in the incident, she wouldn't have even had pressed charges if the Matthews family had taken the allegations more seriously. So, you know, that that's the first pretty distressing part to this. 
But then the second really distressing part is just how it's kind of being swept aside by people in the hockey media, like I was alluding to before. So there's a lot of this, you know, very dismissive attitude of, oh, boys will be boys. And I'm sure the way that the top brass in the Toronto Maple Leafs are looking at it is they're really hoping to sweep it under the rug, probably hoping that it passes over soon because... Austin Matthews needs to focus on the season ahead, right? Can't get distracted with all of these allegations because the Leafs really do need that high-scoring, high-producing forward. Well, to continue, to go back again to Javeri's article, she writes, What the Matthews incident throws into sharp relief is a gender divide in hockey that's so obvious it seems silly to even call out, and yet, here we are. Hockey media is primarily male and primarily white, and many of them, either through their jokes or weak takes, have shown how unable or unwilling they are to look outside their own experience and recognize Matthew's troubling behavior for what it is. Trying to get into a women's car at 2am, even if she's a security guard, is some seriously terrifying shit. Women walk around constantly with the burden of being responsible for their own safety, especially late at night, which is something that Matthews and a lot of men have clearly never experienced. And so again, that is from a USA Today article by Hamal Javeri. We'll include a link to it in our show notes, and we will be following this awesome Matthews story as it develops. And with that, that brings us to the end of episode one for season two of Changing on the Fly. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back very soon with more episodes. I especially want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, Anne, Aiden, Nick A, Jeff, Jeremy, Dan, Nick T, Shona, Norm, Andrew, Ellen, Amber, Sam, Grill, and Dasha. And if you want your name on this beautiful credit roll, Sign up to support this podcast at patreon.com slash changing on the fly. We are out of here. My name is Aaron and I will be back soon.